everyone. You're listening to The Katie Halper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Halper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here with you on this wonderful night. And we have a great show for you. It's going to be very informative, very interesting. And we're going to be talking about Martin Luther King. We're going to be talking about his legacy, his life, also his death. And as people watching this know, obviously, we just got out of Martin Luther King weekend. And we also don't know a lot about his life. And when I say that, I mean that the version that American politicians and the media present of Martin Luther King is very different from the version of reality. So there's a major distortion that goes on with Martin Luther King's life. And there's also a lot of stuff that people don't know about his death. And we're going to get into that with our guest. Um, I didn't do the welcome to the Katie Helper show thing. I did. I got really excited about the start of the show. So welcome to the Katie Helper show. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Make sure that you become members on YouTube. If you become members, you get badges and you get special emojis. You get Bodhi emojis, as in my cute little dog. Those are great. Also, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you get exclusive content, extra interviews, extended interviews. It's a great way to support the show. If you do it for $1 a month, you just get to be part of the show and you help make the show happen. For $5 a month, that's when you get the amazing extra content, which is either a fully uh, additional interview or an extended one. Thank you, Brian Frederick, for saying thanks for covering this topic, Katie, and thank you for your super chat. So I'm just going to bring in our guest. He's great. We get so excited when he graces us with his presence because he's a very busy man. He's busy being a journalist at Breakthrough News. He's busy being the host of the Punch-Out! podcast. He's also an author and an activist welcoming to the stage Eugene Purrier. Hello, Eugene. Hello, Katie. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for coming back on. Wonderful to see you. Good to see you as well. Happy New Year. Happy MLK Day. A couple days late. MOK Day weekend. Uh, as my friend Denise Rolock Barnes, the publisher of the Washington Informer, says, a day on, not a day off, a day to remember and act in the legacy of Dr. King. So don't know what everyone did yesterday, uh, but something to remember going forward. I always really appreciated that. Uh, and the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Walk, still uh, an institution in Washington, D.C., that she started and helmed. Fantastic event. Very first Martin Luther King Day event in the country, 1969, Washington, D.C., led by the late, great Petey Green. Of course, there's a movie um, about him with uh, by with Don Cheadle playing him. But the first Martin Luther King Day event ever there in 69 in D.C. So a little bit of D.C. history, but, you know, statehood now. Wow. Did not know that. Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, a little bit of more D.C. history. I think I've told you this, but my mom did briefly date Marion Barry who would become the mayor of Washington, D.C. And apropos of this conversation, was a great civil rights activist with SNCC in his own? He was. And by the way, I should be very clear because I realize I tell this story a lot. My mom met him at a core dinner, at a dinner for the Congress on Racial Equality. Yes, yes, yes. She didn't meet him when he was already a mayor and up to some, you know, questions. I figured that she did not meet him when she was married and when he was married. Right. I've met. I've had the pleasure of meeting your mom, who's a very upstanding uh, woman with yes. a very strong 
political core. I'm yes. glad you mentioned that she herself was involved at that time in the civil rights era. Yeah, she was. I actually didn't understand it when she would tell me about going to Martin Luther King's speech. I thought mm-hmm. that she had a sleepover with someone who was a king and that he told her about his dream like the next day. When did, when did you first realize it? How old were you? Uh, like 25 or something. <laughs> well, that good question there, Wesleyan or what, yeah. Williams? Where'd you go? Wesleyan, Wesleyan, yeah. No yeah, disrespect Wesleyan. Williams or Wesleyan, but I always do get them confused. Yeah, we're all the same to you. All the W schools, all the private W schools. I would say there is more affinity between Wesleyan and Williams than difference. But anyway. Yeah, that's true. As long as you don't confuse Wesleyan with Wellesley. No, a little harder to confuse. Wellesley's where Hillary Clinton went, everyone. It's an all-women's school. Exactly. Yeah, well, you're really, really getting real in the beast here. Yeah. So I thought we could start out by talking about the distortions of Martin Luther King's life and who he is. Then we'll get into the distortions around his death. But, you know, people love celebrating Martin Luther King. It's a patriotic thing to do now. There's a federal holiday. The Army tweets Happy Martin Luther King Day. Prager University tweets out Happy Martin Luther King Day. The CIA, the FBI, institutions that helped try to get him hurt are happy to celebrate him. He's a much more radical than the version that were presented. Can you talk a little bit about his more radical politics that are often ignored? Yeah, I... Absolutely can talk about that. And, you know, I will just say about Martin Luther King Day, uh, you know, the level of hypocrisy is astounding. But it's one of those things that if you think about it, like, how could they not tweet about it? Because to not tweet about it would be like, well, of course, why would Prager University and the FBI, because, you know, they're racist and killed him or at least played a role. That's what people would think, you know what I'm saying? So in a way, it almost speaks to like the power of his legacy and how much he's moved so many people all around the world that even like even people who know it's going to be so hypocritical, they're guaranteed to get roasted, feel like better to get roasted and to have said something than not to have said anything and confirmed myself to be an enemy of like all that's good and right in the world. So I do think that is one sort of a double-edged sword of that hypocrisy, but an important thing to think about is his legacy and his real legacy, as you mentioned, which thankfully I would say over the past five or six years, I think really since the, the Ferguson uprising, we've seen a significant increase in you know, more popular knowledge about the fact that towards the end of his life, King was making many radical statements and doing many radical things. But I think the thing that's really important to note about King is that he was not actually a Johnny come lately to radical thought and radical ideas. And in fact, the milieu of people upon which he sort of grew up in that, you know, the time we're really getting our formative period politically, you know, 14, 15, 16 into our college and, and graduate school years. You know, those were the years of the heyday of, of the popular front era in the United States, a very strong left linked to progressive trade unions and also the Communist Party, of course. And King was very much a part of that conversation. When you look at the early letters between him and Coretta Scott King, she's basically politically vetting him to make sure that he is progressive enough. She was supporting Henry Wallace, the third party candidate in 1948. Um, There's obviously the famous letter where she had given him Edward Bellamy's book about socialism and his response about what he likes about socialism, but why he couldn't fully be into communism because materialism. Um, But it's like very clear that, you know, these two young people in love, that the broader political context is that they were part of this broader left wing wave of people, tens of millions of people that, of course, was crushed by McCarthyism. So, you know, I think King was someone whose politics 
were were both forward looking and practical. He was not planning to get involved in the civil rights movement. Um, it's an interesting story about how he did. But I think as we see throughout his life, you see many sort of glimpses and openings into the fact that he had a very sort of radical countenance. And I think that it's not that his ideas evolved. It's that the political uh, situation changed. And I think as the political situation changed, I think King really grasped onto that in a prescient, strategic way and wanted to push a lot harder and a lot faster. And as we can see, he was willing to say many more radical things, critiquing colonialism, neo-colonialism, militarism, capitalism directly, um, saying we need more class struggle. We should move towards a democratic socialism. Capitalism has outlived its usefulness. Those are exact quotes. Um, But even early in his career in 1962, there's a sermon, uh, Christianity or Communism, I believe. And while there's a lot of sort of standard Cold War rhetoric, you know, it's a strong call for social justice and the importance, basically saying that the existence of communism calls us to recognize that it's right to want social justice. And even if we denounce communism, um, you know, we have to embrace all these, you know, positive things, people having the right to eat, right to be educated, so on and so forth. So even in that Cold War frame, trying to bring that up, there's a, a speech that he gave to the uh, Omega Sci-Fi, I believe that same year, maybe 1961, where he just rips them in the whole speech for being too bourgeois and too caught up and, you know, trying to be in the upper classes than the majority of black people who were proletarians and trying to lift them up and got a standing ovation. He was consistently bucking the McCarthyist trend in the country. You know, I've, there's a famous sort of uh, thing that, every, you know, many people have certainly learned about with Jack O'Dell, who is a member of his staff, a former member at that time of the Communist Party, but very close to the left. And just to cut to the chase, he gets brought to the White House, Martin Luther King, to put pressure on him to get rid of, you know, um, Jack O'Dell. You can't have a communist, like a real communist on the staff of civil rights, if the White House is going to support Martin Luther King and civil rights. Um, it gets it starts with a low-level guy. It ends up with JFK in the Rose Garden. And according yeah. to King, they go to the Rose Garden because JFK motioned to him that they were surveilling him. And he goes on to ask King if he knows about the Profumo scandal, which is a famous scandal that had brought down Harold Macmillan at that time from the prime minister of England. Um, And it was basically about him standing by a friend who was wrong. Um, That's the story. And he said, you know, don't let the, don't let him, don't let them take us down because of somebody else, Jack O'Dell. So, I mean, you know, that's heavy pressure right there. The president and the Rose Garden saying that he's 100% with you. You got to get rid of this one guy. And King still won't commit to getting rid of him. Yeah. The crazy part about the story is despite all of that, he had to be convinced by his staff. And of course, then O'Dell actually left of his own accord. They said he had to sign an affidavit to confirm that he was not in the Communist Party. Um, and he refused to do that and went back to New York and started you know, anyway, but so long story short, we can see he consistently bucked the McCarthyite presence. And then, of course, as I mentioned, towards the end of his life, you know, really raised a number of different critical issues and was starting to bring together the Poor People's Campaign, you know, a multinational campaign trying to bring together all poor people in America to win, you know, significant gains for average working people, including, by the way, universal basic income, among other things. Um, So they were talking about that then. But, you know, significant changes that would have ended poverty in America was the goal of of that campaign. And then, of course, tragically cut down when living his own ideals there, fighting for the Memphis sanitation workers, fighting for a union because they lived in poverty. A lot to unpack in what you just said and respond to. You know, one thing, though, that's obviously clear is that, as you said, he wasn't unradical, but he did speak out in a way he hadn't previously with his Beyond Vietnam speech. At least he spoke out in front of a bigger audience, right, in a way that he hadn't 
previously. So he was panned. I mean, he spoke about the triple threats of militarism, poverty, and racism, right? And people were really upset. I just looking at some of the quotes from the press at the time, nearly 150 newspapers criticized his speech. The New York Times attacked King for fusing together war in Vietnam, quote, war in Vietnam with the cause of Negro equality in the United States, which were two public problems that are distinct and separate. And it warns, by drawing them together, Dr. King has done a disservice to both. The moral issues in Vietnam are less clear-cut than he suggests. The political strategy of uniting the peace movement and the civil rights movement would very well be disastrous for both causes. They called his words facile and slander and said, to divert the energies of the civil rights movement to the Vietnam issue is both wasteful and self-defeating, especially when he needed to focus on the intractability of slums, mores, and habits. The Washington Post said that King diminished his usefulness to his cause, to his country, and to his people. Time ran an article called Confusing the Cause that called King a drawling bumpkin, so ignorant. You guys, this is time, okay? A drawling bumpkin, so ignorant that he had not read a newspaper in years, who had wandered out of his native haunts and away from his natural calling. The Pittsburgh Courier, a black newspaper, criticized King for, quote, tragically misleading black Americans on things that were too complex for simple debate. So people were not happy about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What I mean, those quotes say it all. I mean, there was universal condemnation from the mainstream press at that time. I, I think it's, you know, maybe people won't even believe this now, some younger people, you know, black leaders were not considered qualified to really speak on foreign policy issues. And so you look at that time piece, it was very much in line with a lot of op-eds and other pieces that were coming out at that time, essentially saying, who is this black leader to be speaking out on these issues he doesn't understand? There had really only been one black diplomat of substance at that time as Dr. Ralph Bunch. Um, even He was not very well known because he was at the United Nations, not in the United States. So at that time, not only was he bucking a lot of the consensus against the Vietnam War, which in 1967 was still highly contested. Um, I think that the image we get of the Vietnam War is that in many ways, like the whole time, everyone was really against it. But in 67 was when the momentum was really starting to build. I mean, the anti-war movement really kind of started in 64, um, with some of the early interventions, but of course it more or less tracked the growth of the U.S. presence there. So, you know, 1966 was the huge, huge escalation in the number of troops, and then 1967 becomes a year of significant escalation in the opposition, because not only is America more involved, but there are these very brutal, harrowing images um, that Dr. King talked about himself being some of the things that moved him um, coming out into the press. Uh, I believe he actually referenced the famous um, photo of the young girl, um, you know, who's been hit by napalm and is running nude down the road. But, you know, similar types of images um, that were moving people to realize something had to be done. So, you know, he was taking a stand against almost the entire political establishment. There was no real opposition to Vietnam in any major way in Congress at that time. So he was stepping way out there. There certainly was no um, significant opposition from, you know, the sort of broader political sphere uh, in many ways. And it was really, quite frankly, students um, who were not considered to have the right to speak and other kind of more radical groups that had started it. King, of course, had already spoken at this point at Vietnam events. So the Riverside speech was his first anti-war event. Um, but nevertheless, King getting involved in a big way showed that things were changing 
uh, in a massive sense in the country in terms of who was willing to speak out. So it was a it was a game changer, you know, for the movement at that moment and really a sea change. And I think the anger towards it from the mainstream media shows exactly why it was it was such a notable thing because the possibility of you know the civil rights movement which had just changed the country and shocked and electrified the world you know coming to the aid of these students who knows where that could lead but it certainly wasn't going to be good for the foreign policymakers who wanted to escalate the war in Vietnam right so uh, let's talk about Martin Luther King's death can you talk about the kind of official narrative and how that compares to what actually happened. Sure. Well, the official narrative is that King was shot by James Earl Ray. Uh, King was on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel there in Memphis, and the shot allegedly came from a firehouse, the equivalent of across the street, I guess, sort of across a lot from the Lorraine Motel, that James Earl Ray was essentially just, uh, you know, random racist who, like many random racists around the country, wanted King dead, who took action after he took that shot. He fled. He then went to Canada. Um, he was trying to escape the country to get to Rhodesia, not Zimbabwe, but at that time, of course, was the white minority Rhodesia. Um, and he was caught in Canada, extradited to the United States, and uh, ultimately convicted of the assassination. He pled guilty. It was only subsequently, three days later, that he said that that wasn't the case. And even when he, I guess he was signing his guilty plea, apparently said that he didn't agree with all the facts. But nevertheless, he did plead guilty um, and was sentenced to it. But pretty much right away, said it wasn't him. And then for the rest right. of his life, um, yeah. in the late 90s, he said it was not him. So that's the official story. I don't think that's really the story that most people accept anymore. I, I think most people feel something, even if James Earl Ray was involved, that so, that there was a much larger conspiracy at play. So I do feel that there's sort of a general sense by a lot of people that something is not right. But that is the official statement. So the real question is, and, and that is, of course, what the government will uphold, what authorities will uphold. But I would say the popular mood has shifted more towards King was was probably killed by someone else. There are a lot of theories about who, but I think it's worth knowing for people who do have that general feeling, it's not just a quote unquote conspiracy theory. It's not just one of these things that like, oh, people joke about, oh, we know they did X, Y, Z. I mean, it is that, um, but it actually is well-founded in fact that certainly there was a conspiracy surrounding this. Even if you believe that James Irway was the killer himself, and there are some who do not believe that, there is pretty much zero doubt that there had to have been some sort of conspiracy when you look at the facts on hand. I would say there's two primary chunks of evidence that speak to that. Um, the first one being, you know, Ray, when he's arrested, the guy has five aliases, Canadian aliases. He's never been to Canada before. He's a small time criminal with no, no one thinks he had this kind of sophistication. And when I say sophistication, not only did he have five aliases, they were all people who lived in the area he was in, in Canada, that looked like them. A couple of them even were people who had scars on the same side of their face as he did. So how does just a completely random dude with like no high level criminal skills, as far as we can tell, who's just a lone racist, have like such a sophisticated way to get away? I mean, it just, it doesn't really make a, yeah. to me. He's an you know, unsuccessful criminal, right? He's like, Bungle, yes. bungle different robberies. I mean, never really done anything of note. So like you've got that just like right there, which makes you think, okay, somebody had to have helped this guy. Like how is this even possible? But then you have other evidence that we've gained over the years 
the two black firefighters in that firehouse were mysteriously transferred, like, you know, essentially right before the assassination, never given good reasons why. A black police officer who actually on his own accord uh, decided to set up a surveillance uh, situation in the firehouse was himself ordered away prior, I think actually just a couple hours prior to the assassination. We know that the police officer who normally formed the all black officer unit to protect King was told not to set up that unit and that some and it was because someone in King's staff had said they don't want any black officers surrounding him, which wouldn't make any sense because if there was anything that King was being criticized for in Memphis, it was not it was by some people saying he wasn't pro-black enough. So why he would want to be surrounded by all white cops obviously protecting him, I don't know. But and why he'd want to do it differently than before, I don't know. But like that also asks a question. And then when allegedly he's getting away in this white car, um, you know, the the chase is all messed up because there's another report on the radio that there is a white car and a blue car in some sort of, you know, high-speed chase. I think some even said there was a gunfight. So that messed up the whole thing. So, you know, how does one person, I mean, so either James Earl Ray was either much more sophisticated than any evidence that's ever emerged has ever shown he was, and actually gained from a range of extraordinarily lucky coincidences. Or obviously, either he or whoever did it had multiple people working around that. And I think that's an important factor. So I think just right there, we can say that obviously there was something much larger going on than just one lone person. And when you look at it like that, you know, you have to then go the normal courtroom thing, qui bono. Who are the people who most wanted to see Martin Luther King dead? And I think there are obviously a range of people that, you know, fit into that category. And there are different ways that that range of people can stick together um, and can fit together. And so in some ways, I don't know if it's as important who did it, from my point of view, as the fact that we know for sure it was a conspiracy to kill him. We know for sure that many of the most powerful forces in the country and, you know, writ large, the world, definitely hated him, definitely, if not absolutely wanted him dead, were like wishing he got hit by a car and died, right? I mean, we know it was that level of animus. Uh, so, you know, you put those two things together, it seems like the people who benefit the most from King being dead are all very powerful entities and very powerful people. Now, I don't know if you want me to say more than that right now, but I'd say that that to me is the basic difference between the official story and what obviously actually happened is the official story is it was just one random lone racist and the actual real story. When you look at the circumstantial facts that we do have and the real facts, not just circumstantial, um, the facts that we do have point towards some sort of broader conspiracy to kill King and get away with it. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that's kind of, mind-boggling is the fact that there was a court case, right? There was a civil case and the U.S. government actually was found guilty in the conspiracy to assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. Can you talk about that? Yes. So there was a civil case that was was brought um, through the agency of this guy, Lloyd Jowers, who had come, he was old at that time, um, who, you know, was coming forward towards the end of his life saying somebody who I don't really know who it is gave me a hundred thousand dollars to hire a hitman to kill King. So it was in the course of that civil trial for damages um, against Bowers that the evidence was brought forward around the U S government, which because of a range of issues could not have been brought directly. So it was a civil trial, not a criminal trial. 
And I'll say at the outset, that's exactly why a lot of people dismiss it. Um, now, what I will say about that is civil trials do still require evidence. So it is a lower proof of evidence than a criminal trial, but it's not like, you know, you can just say and do whatever you want to say and do. And of course, civil trials, we all, you know, I don't know, let me just put it to you like that. So I just want to say that that's a reason why it's dismissed off of hand. Um, but it's not like a civil trial. Is right, because like there's a lower threshold of, of proof required in a civil trial, but it's not nothing. The other thing, some of the testimony that was, you know, over tape and things like that was not sworn testimony. So there have all these things that have been thrown at it. But yes, the jury did concede that or did agree that they believe there was a conspiracy involving the United States government to kill Martin Luther King. And you know, I think that for sure there are a lot of questions. I mean, you know, you look at this guy, Lloyd Jowers, and there are a lot of people who would say, well, this is a Johnny come lately. He's coming in the 90s. He was about to die. But the first question you have to ask yourself is what possible reason could he have to come forward to clear the name of James Earl Ray at this stage in time? Like you think if they were friends, he would have been trying to clear him this whole time if they had some connection. So to just, and they don't seem to have any intimate, have had any intimate connection, but you know, there's not really a lot of reasons why this guy would come forward. So, I mean, unless he just randomly wants to have his 15 minutes of fame, I guess would be the one plausible question. But what we do know about the testimony that came out one, that's where a lot of the testimony I stated about the black fire firemen, black police officers, where they testified um, as to some of the things that had happened that day. That is where, um, there was also testimony from someone from the sanitation department over something that James Orange, who is one of King's top aides, has noted for years that he believes that the shot came from some bushes that were on the ground and those bushes were mysteriously cleared right away. Um, and that lead, of course, never been followed up on. There's also the fact that in the trial, Jowers testified that or not in the trial, excuse me, he previously had testified. He did not testify um, or had previously stated that the meetings to plan it had happened at this place, Jim's Grill. I believe he was the owner. He might've been the manager. Um, and that of the two people, one of the people there was this guy, uh, McCullough, I believe his name is, who is pretending to be a black militant who was there with King. It was one of the first people to reach him. And then a police officer in the Memphis PD who Ambassador Andrew Young, who of course at that time was an aide to Dr. King says, was the first cop to run up the stairs um, at that moment. Now, I don't know how Jowers would have known to put those two things together. I, I, you know, I don't know if, I don't know, maybe their names are in a trial transcript or something, but one of them was an undercover cop and it didn't come out until years later. So there's just a lot of points that like, okay, how did he pick these two random people? Um, and then also Andrew Young did say that he identified one of the people as having like been right around there possibly. Um, another person. So anyway, long story short, there are a lot of things that it's hard to actually explain unless perhaps they were there um, and that they did plan it there and that someone did give him $100,000. You know, he claims that it was a mafia guy who gave him the money. And Ray, James Earl Ray, claims that the person who got him involved was a guy named Raul. And we certainly know from the JFK assassination, right, that the at least theories, there are theories that are out there. Um, and I think also to me, that was also a high level conspiracy, but the involvement of the mafia and the involvement of the Cuban exile community uh, seem to be pretty much involved in every conspiracy there is, so-called conspiracy um, that's been mooted about JFK. So, you know, I could see why similar people would want them both dead, right? So that is an interesting data point as well. Um, we know the Ku Klux Klan had a $100,000 bounty 
out on King. Interesting that Jower said he was given $100,000. Um, you know, there was also similar, you know, there have been reports that some Ku Klux Klan people have been saying they had heard about a plot. Um, same thing with JFK. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting sort of points here that came out in that trial that you would think would have merit people looking into them and people, you know, doing more. Almost no one covered the trial or talked about it. And to the extent the trial has been covered and talked about, it's completely and totally dismissed as totally false, even though at the very least, there are some leads that are totally untied up loose ends that at, at the very least raise serious questions. Yeah. I mean, the lack of, uh, I was listening to this podcast called the MLK Tapes and William Pepper, who was a friend of Martin Luther King, he actually took some of the photos that was from Vietnam. Uh, he couldn't get them published anywhere except for Ramparts magazine. And MLK saw those photographs and was incredibly disturbed. And that's when he really started focusing on Vietnam more. But he wound up defending James Earl Ray. Yeah. So he wound, you know, he started thinking James Earl Ray was the person who had killed his good friend. And then he thought that he wasn't. He represented him and he wrote a book about it. And he says that the person at the New York Times who was supposed to review the book was told to scrap the review and that that had never happened to him before. Just another example. But the, but the fact that there was no media around it is just so incredible that people don't even know that there was this case. And Coretta Scott King was grateful and thanked every, you know, thanked the people for the case. Was grateful for the verdict. It's just stunning. Yeah, I mean, the, the only the only reason that the case wasn't covered has to have been that people at the high level of the media industry, who are of course all you know major elite people, did not want it covered and were most likely being told, "Don't put this in there." I mean, I know people think stuff like that doesn't happen in America, but it does. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of evidence of it. And I think there's no way that something that newsworthy, especially because, you know, trial of the century TV trials were all the rage back then. The OJ trial, Clinton impeachment. Like, so you're telling me that. And by the way, this guy, Lloyd Jowers, I believe it was Lloyd Jowers, but someone else who was involved in this was interviewed by Sam Donaldson on ABC, like in the early 90s. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? But you would think if there's any trial that the media would say, oh, this could be explosive in terms of ratings is a trial to see like who was really involved in killing Martin Luther King, where the family doesn't believe it was James Earl Ray, who everyone has been told is the person um, like that is newsworthy, no matter how you look at it. And again, many of the leads are in fact newsworthy. And so it really truly doesn't make sense that even post trial, someone years later hasn't looked at the transcript and thought, man, why don't we actually look into this and see what's going on? Now, what has happened is people who off book writers have done this. And there are a number of books that have come out on this issue that look into a lot of it. So the publishing industry is willing to publish a book, but I think because assassination books will sell and no one ever considers them to be true. Um, but you know, a New York Times investigation has a very different vibe to it. And it's just hard for me to believe that this isn't coordinated somewhere and that when it comes up, there is, it's sort of like anytime there's a big push for Leonard Peltier um, to be freed, like all these FBI agents emerge out of everywhere and start telling their story which is totally fake and totally discredited. And it gets run in the media as like, why are they going to let this cop killer out of prison? Um, and then it just disappears. It just seems to me like there has to be somebody that when it appears and people start calling around asking questions, they start calling editors talking about, look, we can't do this. And when you look at the fact that the King files are under even tighter lock and key than the JFK files, where we're still waiting for many things to come out, even things that have been cleared for release and ordered for release, um, 
is kind of like Guantanamo Bay in that sense. Um, you know, the fact that there's even more, and, and especially because we know so many negative things that the government did to King, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, so at this point, if it's not coming out, there's something so explosive. You know, it's been said that some of the personal information, um, which I could see it being a judge saying, yeah. hey, I don't want to be the guy who put this out there, but his family has said, release any information. Um, some of that information, by the way, is already leaked. We have a general sense of it. And this is also, you know, 2022. I mean, yeah. look, Trump, the uh, Access Hollywood tape, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that, that, that can't possibly be the reason. There has to be something. Infidelity. Yes. In the FBI files and in the files of the Senate and the, the government investigation, the congressional investigation, there has to be something there that even if it isn't like the FBI killed King is at least so damning that they don't want it out. And I, I mean, I could think of any number of things that aren't that they killed him that could be equally as you know significantly destabilizing to these institutions, because like I said, to come all the way back to the beginning, Dr. King is totally revered. So, you know, to learn what if, what if part of it is that some people involved in the FBI now are involved? What if some, you know, politician who was previously a law enforcement official, I mean, you know, who knows who could potentially have been involved in this kind of thing. It's like when you look into Mamiya Abu-Jamal's case and like, just weirdly, you start seeing like every bold face name in Pennsylvania politics for the next 30 years coming out of that case. And you think, oh, well, no wonder they'll never hear it. I'm sure Ed Rendell never did anything to stop that. You know what I mean? Right. Like yeah, his, career his hands are clean. of these things. So right. I think that there's somebody who's being protected. Um, and if it is that they actually ordered it from a high level, the Jagger Hoover type level or something like that, it'll probably never see the light of day because that right. obviously would be damning. And if it was even higher level than that, I mean, we do know that King and Lyndon Johnson had had a bitter break, that Johnson is the was the most hardcore of enemies and that he was very, very friendly with J. Edgar Hoover. They used to be neighbors. So, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm definitely not out here saying Lyndon Johnson ordered the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. I'm just saying when you start to put together the fact that they're keeping everything under wraps, I think you have to just assume everything from that to like something that's just like super embarrassing and they don't want people to know um, is probably what's in there. Yes, definitely. And Brian actually asked, did uh, LBJ want King dead for opposing him on Vietnam? Again, not that you're saying that you know whether or not Johnson's role was, but how did he see King at that point? I think if he did want him dead, that would be the reason. That was the turning point between King and Johnson. And that, of course, was when Johnson used the famous uh, phrase around King, that N-word preacher. And for sure, Johnson was furious. He felt, I back King all the way when a lot of people didn't want to back him and, you know, turned on the Dixiecrats. Now, whether or not that really was the whole narrative is one thing, but that's what he felt. And that he thought that King basically owed it to him to ride with him. Now, of course, Johnson thought that about everyone he was working with. But he was very, very angry at King, very, very angry at many people who he felt had betrayed him. And he thought King was one of those people. So we know for a fact that Vietnam caused a huge rift between um, the two of them. Not that they had ever been particularly close, but they had come together for that historic moment in our history, 1964 and 1965, to do many you know, amazing, laudable things. I mean, it's easy to say how much they didn't do, but I think, you know, we forget how much that, you know, many of those laws, what they did do and what it still sticks with us to this day. 
Now, can you talk about the FBI's decision to not notify King about assassination attempts? Yeah, they never told him about any of the assassination attempts they'd ever heard about. And, you know, I don't know when they made that law that when they, the government, like when they hear those assassination attempts, they have to like protect you. I don't know if that was the law then, but it does at least seem like, you know, propriety. I'm sure they were telling many other people all the time that there were death threats against them. I mean, we know that for a fact, actually. Um, But obviously they had, I mean, they were one of the death threats. I mean, of course, a lot of people were talking this weekend. I saw um, amongst more progressive people on Twitter about the infamous smear letter that, you know, sent some of some, some you know, uh, activities of King and basically said, kill yourself uh, if you don't want this to come out. So, you know, they themselves were the, also making death threats. So, of course, they didn't really want anyone. They didn't care that people were making death threats. I think it's important to note that from the point of view of the FBI, King was absolutely the enemy. The civil rights movement was the enemy. Like, there is no doubt about it at all. I mean, of course, you know, J. Edgar Hoover wrote the famous Black Messiah memo to not allow a black leader to reach any significant height. We certainly know the man was a virulent racist. We certainly know that he was doing everything possible to promote and to assist the pro-segregation, pro-racist forces. Uh, We know that he had full knowledge of many of the things. How did they find the bodies of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner so quickly? Because the FBI had the Ku Klux Klan so infiltrated. When Viola Liuzzo the white mother from Detroit, mother of five, I believe, who saw the Selma march on TV and drove her station wagon from Detroit to Selma all day and all night long to be a part of the events at Selma, and then who was later murdered on the side of the road by you know cowardly Klan terrorists who shot her at Point Blank Ranch with a shotgun blast. One of the people in the car was an FBI informant, <laughs> and he was telling them that the FBI was out there, uh, that the Klan was out there looking to kill people, and they said, keep, do, keep doing your thing. Um, so functionally, you know, I think we have to see the far-right Ku Klux Klan activity of that time as an extension of the FBI, because ultimately they were very deeply involved, and even if they weren't planning everything or pushing the button on everything, they were so intimately infiltrated into the uh, into the Ku Klux Klan and these other far-right organizations that without a doubt, they were allowing them to act as a terrorist movement to try to terrorize the civil rights movement. And they're doing it on purpose. We certainly know, um, you know that they also colluded from the point of view of the famous bloody Mother's Day of the Freedom Riders, where you know they were in league with Bull Connor to make sure there weren't going to be any law enforcement officials for at least 15 minutes when the Freedom Riders got off that bus and they were all beaten to nearly an inch of their life. I really encourage people to read Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch and to read the intense brutality there that they were a part of that. So we know for an absolute fact that not only did they not warn King, they themselves were threatening King's life. They for absolute certain were empowering a right-wing vigilante terrorist organization all across the South to engage in terroristic activity towards the Black population, towards Black activists. And they were facilitating the flow of negative information about the civil rights movement to all of the most racist conservative members of Congress in order to help build up the political opposition to the civil rights movement. So uh, it's, it's, it's so deep, really. I mean, I think in a way, it's almost become boilerplate, quote unquote, COINTELPRO, and a lot of people just kind of talk about it and throw it around now. But it, it was like extremely deep. The FBI was doing everything it possibly could to stop Black people from gaining their rights because from Hoover's point of view, which was shared by a large majority of the elite of the country, 
um, and that's why Hoover was there because he had a lot of backing in Congress and in the establishment. Uh, they believed the civil rights movement was a threat to America and that it was, you know, going that black people having any rights was going to destroy the country and that it had to be stopped at all costs. And can you just tell people more about that letter that was written where they encouraged him to kill himself and who what we know about who sent that letter? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, we 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 know some about the letter. I mean, we know that I believe it did come from the FBI. Um, the contents of it, I have to be honest with you, are, are partially eluding me beyond the general. He was basically like, it was someone who was claiming to be a black person who was very upset with King for being unfaithful to his wife and how it kind of disgraced the race and he should just kill himself. Yes, and it was tied to tapes they had of, yes, of right. him and sex that they also said yeah. they had the evidence. Um, something that's called, it's known as brown mailing, actually, when you pretend to be someone else. And this is one of the number one tactics of COINTELPRO, used um, massively against the Black Panthers, letters from different people saying, this person hates you, this person trying to kill you. Right. Uh, many people caught up in that. Many people killed, unfortunately, because of that. Um, so this was also done to King, and it was an attempt, you know, to try to use what has been alleged about his personal life against him in a way that, uh, you know, they thought would, would, would work. Now it didn't work because one of the things that's notable is he immediately told people about it. Uh, he immediately told all his aides, this has happened. And they said, what can we do? Um, and how are we going to deal with it? And basically the aides figured out pretty quickly, well, this is never going to come out because there's no way they are legally wiretapping you. Um, especially to this extent. And so they knew it was the FBI or they had a summation, but they were right. They knew what the point was, but they also understood the legal ramifications of what the FBI was doing. Now, of course it did cause great panic. Um, and it later caused, you know, some serious issues, um, with his wife when he told her, uh, and you know, that was obviously a very fraught social moment, but she also, you know, basically was, I'm going to stick with you regardless, yeah. understanding the implications of the letter and, and what they were trying to do. You know, she wasn't going to also play into that. I'm sure. I don't know how she truly felt, but you know, she was obviously deeply political and politically right. savvy. Um, so she wasn't going to be used as a tool. And I think his advisors, you know, listen, I mean, I, I don't know what's true and I don't know what's false. I was not there. I've never witnessed it. I know what's been written. I know including what's been written about by some of King's advisors. But, you know, if that is true, I don't think he's the first or the last person to have had extramarital sex. Um, so that's for sure. And I doubt he's the first person to be relatively raucous, as has been alleged. Yeah. Uh, so functionally... I, you know, it, it, I don't, I'm not surprised that many of his aides were not that shocked, um, especially at that time where, you know, of course, Look at, the I mean, JFK. people yeah. were, yeah, like no one even really cared. It added to your mystique in a way to be known as, as a, as a cad, as they would say, as a ladies man. So yeah. in a way, you know, it was what it was. So it, you know, interestingly, it kind of backfired on them to an extent because then it really gave the movement a very good sense of the depth of the surveillance, because as many people in the movement will say and have written in books, they always knew they were being surveilled. But it wasn't until that letter and, you know, how personal some of those tapes were that they realized, oh, this is like 100 percent at all times. They're like tapping our phones. They're putting microphones in our houses in all the hotel rooms. So it sort of it gave them to some degree a leg up, um, not you know, that it totally stopped it, but at least gave them much more knowledge of how to keep their conversations secure because they recognized there was a higher level of surveillance and they had had um, at least been willing to, to think about. Right. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, let's see, we have a couple more minutes of your time. Um, wanted to ask you about, speaking of slain leaders, I want to ask you about um, Patrice Lumumba, because of course, Martin Luther King's birthday was January 15th, and uh, Patrice Lumumba, who uh, was killed on January 17th. So can you talk to us about Patrice Lumumba? And, all, and actually, those two those stories are somewhat related. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Uh, obviously, Patrice Lumumba, one of the great heroes of African liberation. He was the prime minister of the Congo, which now is known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and at one point was known as Zaire. And he, too, was assassinated. And his assassination, of course, has also been linked to major powers, the CIA, also Belgium, um, you know, the UK has been in a softer way linked to it. Uh, and there's a very, there's a long, there's sort of a long kind of history here, sort of in the play, the lead up to his assassination. Congo, of course, had become independent in 1960 from Belgium, and the independence was not really wanted by Belgium. It had come relatively quickly. They had to give up the colonies sort of, you know, quickly and less than excitedly. So they had been doing everything possible to try to set it up so that it would be the most neo-colonial style of situation possible. Um, but Lumumba and his party totally overturned that. And they were pushing a, an agenda that, you know, some might call it radical. I, I, you know, might not necessarily call it that radical other than the fact that they were, you know, fighting for their right to be sovereign and make their own decisions. Um, but they certainly were progressive thinking people there. And just like Seko Toure, of Guinea, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, uh, Namdi Azikwe of Nigeria, Modubo Keita of Mali, all these leaders that were coming to the fore at that time who were you know, very critical of the colonial status quo, who were critical of the Cold War mentality and were pushing very, very hard to make uh, African sovereignty and post-colonialism real. And they also wanted to fight very aggressively against apartheid in Southern Africa. And then the then, um, which also included the then Portuguese colonies of Angola and Mozambique and also Guinea-Bissau. So, you know, the leading radical edge of this anti-colonial movement that was sweeping the world at the time and was changing the world and was challenging the sort of post-World War II attempts of the United States and the West to continue to control the world um, by taking a position that was basically neutral in the Cold War, if not soft pro-Soviet. And so Lumumba, who was, you know, in this country, the Congo, that has tremendous economic power, tremendous economic power. I mean, so many of the minerals, it's like the number one source or right up there. Uh, it has huge hydropower potential as well that has never been fully exploited. And so for the Congo to go into sovereign, independent hands, deeply problematic because the Congo has a lot of leverage over the major, still to this day, over the major industries of the West and a huge amount of the things that are coming from there. Now, the most notable one is coltan, right? Which is a major thing for cell phones. But over this, so many minerals, I can't even get into them. Um, so rich as a place. And with a lot of other potential agriculture and things like that. So essentially from jump, um, as we know, and it's now documented, the US, the UK, Belgium were like, this cat has to go. Like just from, really from his first speech where, you know, the king was there, Belgium has a king, 
And he just kind of went in, Lumumba, um, more or less. It was not like a deferential speech to his white masters, which was, I think, what they were expecting. So pretty much from the jump, they were against him. And there's a whole long point. If, if you really want to get into like the minute details, people should read Challenge of the Congo, Challenge of the Congo by Kwame Nkrumah, where Nkrumah goes through the whole crisis and his own role in it, which is illuminating. Um but there's a whole crisis basically for the whole time Lumumba is the head of the country until 1961. So he's only there for a year. And the crux of the crisis is that people were trying to bring him down all sorts of different ways. And that most of those people were backed heavily by Belgium and also by the Western powers. So finally, the country started to break apart. And a region in the south called Katanga was just the very rich copper region. Um still continues to be to this day, was had seceded. And again, long story short, Lumumba is taken captive. He's taken down there to Katanga and he's killed unceremoniously in a brutal death. Now, there are- And he was 35. Books, yes, he was 35 years old. Um, there are many books written about this too. Uh, you know, listen, there are- before we even get to the key point, which is like, did the U.S. do it? Did the U.K. do it or whatever? Kind of regardless of the actual details of him being killed in that moment, there's no doubt that the U.S. and Belgium, for sure, and perhaps even the U.K., but definitely the U.S. and Belgium, were 100% responsible for this. Because the only reason this sort of secessionist situation and the forces who killed him were around to do anything was because they were being heavily backed by the West, especially Belgium and Katanga, but also the United States also others, um, including perhaps Franco uh, in Spain, the fascist. So, um, you know, there was a lot of forces. So it never could have happened without their machinations to destroy the Congo and to bring down Lumumba. Had they done nothing and just accepted Congolese independence, you know, Lumumba would have not only routed his opponents, but gone on to live for, I don't, who knows, maybe they would have killed him later. But certainly, you know, he it would not have taken place, at least not at that time in that way, and maybe never, because he would have become consolidated. So, there's that. Now, there is testimony that exists from various individuals who were in the CIA that the CIA was definitely there, um, that they were there in the town that night, CIA agents, that they were in contact with the assassins, that perhaps they played a role, if not in ordering it and covering it up, um, and many pieces like that. There is definitely documented evidence that the U.S. had already um, authorized uh, an assassination on Lumumba. Like if you get the opportunity, take the shot. Dwight Eisenhower did um, approve that. And it's also known that the Belgians, same thing, um, that they had approved it. They wanted it. They were saying they wanted to execute him. And that for sure, uh, you know, they also were deeply involved. There are these mercenaries that were basically Belgian military officers who were flooding into the country. Like they had all these white Belgians coming in and French people to back them up against Lumumba and try to destroy the country. And they were saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. They're just mercenaries. But really, they were just demobilized uh, Belgian colonial troops who, they, you know, left the country and came right back, um, still probably being, you know, and then being paid by Katango, who was being paid by these big countries. So anyway, you know, Certainly, for sure, it's possible the Belgians were right in there and the CIA was right in there and that they were standing there in the next room or something. Also possible they weren't there, but they knew it was going down. Um, and then when it went down, you know, covered it up. But quite frankly, 
when you look at the history of it, as soon as Lumumba was captured, it was clear he was going to be killed and that he would not be released. And even though it took some, there was a little bit of an interval between those times. And I think it's very clear that the original capturing just never would have happened without the role of the Western powers and that ultimately they are responsible for what happened regardless of their specific role. But I do think their specific role was very significant and it seems very clear that their forces were very much in the vicinity. And, you know, if they weren't there when it happened, they were there right after. And if they didn't know ahead of time, they were the first people to learn. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions about that, but there is no question that they were deeply involved. And in fact, um, you know, in the U.S. and in Brussels, they have admitted that it is true that they, the government, both governments were, were hoping to and trying to kill Lumumba. The U.K., it's a little bit more circumstantial, um, but I don't know why they wouldn't, you know, also want him dead in the broader context. Um, whether or not they were actively planning, I don't know, but um, definitely the U.S. and Belgium were actively planning. Right. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's like on the one, it's laughable, but then on the other hand, I mean, I would say I'm one of these people that, I always get roasted for this. I prefer to have the hypocritical celebration of the holiday that we have to fight for the true meaning of Martin Luther King than not. Because sure. from my point of view, the fact that they, no one is, do, they did not do this because they wanted to do this. When the law came in, it only came in because black people were protesting to have a holiday for Martin Luther King's right. birthday. And a lot of people oppose it. I think even when you look at Maya Angelou on the quarter, I mean, from my point of view, the struggle of black people for their own liberation and respect and dignity as human beings has become so undeniable. Even people who, quite frankly, are 100 percent against anything that Dr. King or Maya Angelou or Harriet Tubman ever promoted. And it's massively hypocritical. Feel like above all else, we do not want the general public to know that we are terrible racist doing horrible things that are reinforcing all the negative policies that these people supported. So yes, it's hypocritical, but it also speaks to the strength and the power of people's struggles that it compels even the most cynical response in a positive way. I feel the same way about all the brands after Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Like, is it a little annoying? Yes, it's a little annoying. But like, yes, if the biggest consumer brand on earth, Nike, feels like, yeah, the worst possible thing for us would be for people to conceive of us as racist. Yeah, it's a good sign. Cops that are killing people, that means that we're breaking through. And, you know, we obviously don't control everything. I think as left-wing people, progressive people, um, we control very little. We're one of the most embattled you know, groups of this country, even though our views are majority views, fighting to get any sort of purchase hold in any institution anywhere on earth. So I think we have to recognize, even though we have very limited power, one thing that we do have some power over of is the shape and the discussion of the discourse. And when the discourse is responding to our actions, that means our actions are making a difference. Right. So to me, it's just a reminder to keep fighting and to keep growing rather than to just sort of wallow in cynicism, which I think, quite frankly, is the number one response I see from most people who are radical, progressive, revolutionary, yeah. whatever they want to call themselves around any holiday, when obviously it's going to be a bunch of hypocrites. But wouldn't you rather have Indigenous People's Day than Columbus Day? Wouldn't you yeah. rather have, have Martin Luther King be honored than not be honored? We need more holidays for more real heroes and more recognition of the fact that slavery and genocide was perpetrated against tens of millions of people to build the wealth of this country. And, you know, life is not linear. So we're going to win some of those things before we win, you know, something else and vice versa. There are some 
symbolic things that we'll never win until we win serious material change and have the power to make all the changes to the symbols we want. But I think that sometimes it's 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 exactly what they want. I yeah, think. like the, the woke you, CIA commercial. Yeah, you know, they want people to be like, oh, well, if the CIA is doing it, then there's nothing we can do. Um, well, I mean, yeah, like it is hypocritical and cynical, but yeah, we should be fighting for trans rights. And quite frankly, every workplace should be friendly to trans people. Right. And there shouldn't be any exemptions from that. And obviously, I'm 100% for abolishing the CIA, the US military, the whole capitalist state, imperialism, and establishing socialism on a worldwide scale to save the planet and save humanity from looming climate catastrophe amongst everything else that's destroying us. Right. But on the same token, you know, I mean, if I could flip the switch, I would have done it already. But it's not a flip the switch kind of thing. So some of our ideas are going to break through in significant ways before we have the power to fully back it up or fully define the outcome of it. And I think we have to embrace that and just continue to keep pushing forward and use these opportunities to educate and to talk to people about what's really going on, what MLK really stood for, what he was really saying, what he was trying to do. I mean, it's not abstract. I mean, this June, the Poor People's Campaign in Dr. Barber, who's also been on this show, are going to bring tens of thousands of poor people from every part of this country, every nationality and ethnicity, every type of job category and no job, uh, every type of housing situation and homeless to Washington, D.C. to demand that this country take action on the 140 million people who are living in poverty, which is a crime given the amount of wealth that's in this country. So it's not dead. It's still here. Like there's still opportunities and a lot of them, and not just that, but that's one that came to my mind, um, to continue to fight for what you know was happening. So anyway, long story short, and I guess the final thing I'll say, because I did say this at the beginning, was I talk about how Martin Luther King even got involved in the civil rights movement, because I think it's an interesting story. Because I think you look at someone like Dr. King, and it feels like, how could anyone be, how could I ever be that great? How could I ever do anything that significant? Yeah. Well, in many ways, it was accidental, not accidental, but, you know, sort of just spoke to his character, but how anyone can make change. And, you know, the situation that had taken place with Rosa Parks, uh, E.D. Nixon, who is a, a trade union organizer and a relatively left-wing person himself, longtime civil rights activist in Montgomery, had brought all these preachers together. They had been looking for a situation like this to challenge the bus thing for a while. He was like, we got it. We're doing it. We got the person. We can go forward. We got to have somebody lead it. And it probably has to, almost certainly has to be a preacher, just given the overall um, context of our society right now. That's what the people are going to expect. And I feel like this person should do it. Someone who's not Martin Luther King. And so then all the preachers who have been there for a while, they're like, no, nah, we're not going to do it. Like, this is crazy. Like, if we do this, they're going to kill us. I mean, that's the reality. And that's the reality people have to understand. When my dad went to Tuskegee in 1960 to be a professor, you know, these professors were making a lot, some of them were making good money and some of them had nice cars. And he was telling me that a lot of them wouldn't even drive the car off campus. And if they did, they put on a chauffeur cap because they knew if they didn't, they might get stopped by some redneck and lynched. And, you know, that's the mentality that people had. So no one is going to do this. This seems crazy. Why are we going to challenge the leadership of Montgomery when we know they're going to come down hard on us? The only bus boycott that had happened at that time was in Baton Rouge in 1948 and only lasted two weeks. And so Edie Nixon was like, OK, well, if that's how it's going to be, if y'all are scared, then we'll just let it go. And King says, oh, hold on, Brother Nixon. I'm not scared. And he says, OK, well, then you lead it. And there it was. 
he was leading the Montgomery bus boycott. Wasn't planned, wasn't set up that way. He just was the one person in the room who had the courage to try to make a difference. Uh, and when challenged on it, you stepped up. And so I think that is the genius of organizing is that it really is about getting ordinary people to do extraordinary things collectively, which is certainly what the Montgomery bus boycott was. I think it gets super Mist, overly mystified. There's now a whole industry of people who claim to know everything about how to organize. There's a whole industry of people, some of them maybe who've been guests on this show, Katie, who you know can tell you everything about how you're going to win every single election if you just do these 10 things, um, which always comes with, read my book, come to my training. But you know, it is what it is. But the reality is, is a lot of it is not that planned. You know, it's like we do the best we can and then people got to step up. So I think everyone who feels like somehow you aren't that person and you read the history and you're like, how did these people do that? Those people are basically you. And the only difference is at one point they decided to take a step forward and just be counted. And I think that's all that anyone needs is a little bit of courage. And it's not a lot of courage because we're all scared when we do things you shouldn't be doing. But I don't know. I I, I tend to believe with the other friend of this show, David Sirota, uh, in the context of his great movie, Don't Look Up, uh, it's really all about what we do. And, to, and we got to believe in ourselves and believe that we can really change things if we speak up and take action. And I think, you know, that's the message um, of Dr. King's life, quite frankly, is that if it's wrong, say something and maybe you won't succeed. But at the end of the day, you know, at least you will have have done something to try to bend that moral arc of the universe. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Eugene. This has been great. Well, Katie, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your great audience in the chat as always. And I hope that people leave more super chats and go to your Patreon. Thanks. And definitely support Breakthrough News and everything that Eugene is up to. Thank you. I appreciate that, as always. All right. Okay. Well, so- Bye, Eugene. Ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Eugene Purrier. That was great, huh? What a great show. In case you're just tuning in, this is a Katie Halper Show. You can support the Katie Halper Show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And if you do that, you get bonus content and extended interviews and all these great goodies. So again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can also become members on YouTube. If you become a member, you can get badges and emojis, including Bodhi emojis. And this was a great show. Thanks so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you so much to Eugene Purrier for coming on the show. And thank you so much to Brad and Tyler for your help. See you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.